If you would, uh, please turn the scriptures to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Paul has called the Philippians to humility. We've seen that in a number of ways. Uh, In chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, he gave to us the example of Jesus, didn't he? Uh, In uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, he gave to us the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, the selfless service of Timothy, modeling Christ, and the uh, self-sacrificing service of Epaphroditus, modeling Christ. Uh, They were presented as examples, um, servants who are becoming like Jesus. With the attitude, the mindset to humbly serve others. And this attitude and mindset of humble service would unify the Philippians within their conflicts. They're they're in conflict with one another. There's a real chance that we're going to have um, division within this congregation. And uh, Paul is addressing that through this humility. It would enable them to stand side by side against all the external pressures that they are facing. And that's the key, will be the key for them to be able to stand firm in the face of all, all of that. One of the external pressures that they were facing has to do with uh, these false teachers that uh, were likely the Judaizers, that is, those who were insisting on adding requirements such as circumcision and the following of the Old Testament law as requirements for the Gentiles to be right with God. I mean, they were Christians, at least they were professing to be Christians, but they were saying that these things were also necessary in addition to uh, faith in Christ. And so this is obscuring the gospel in a significant way, and not just to this congregation, but to a number of congregations to whom Paul would write. But it's obscuring the Uh, gospel and that message, but it's also creating conflict between these believers as some are addressing, you know, they're they're listening to this false teaching and they're applying it to their lives and they think they're more holy than the next person and the next person needs to be doing these things. And so it's creating conflict. And another thing it is doing, and the reason he is so much emphasizing this idea of rejoicing, this very teaching is robbing them of joy. It's robbing them of the joy that they are to find in their assurance of being right with God through Christ. What we have here in chapter 3 then is one of the clearest statements. He's warning them against these teachers, but in this we have one of the clearest statements in Scripture about how a person actually does become right with God. And it's one of the most compelling arguments for the value the worth of Christ Jesus Himself. So I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll pray and ask God's help to understand what He's saying to us here. Finally, my brothers, and by that He doesn't mean finally. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision 
who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Would you pray with me? Father, we come seeking your help to understand. We understand that we are dependent upon your spirit to teach us, to instruct us, to speak your voice to us. We pray that we would hear it this morning. We pray that you would so address the needs of our hearts. Father, we pray that we would know we have heard from you. We know that you have spoken to our specific needs and that we have responded because your spirit has drawn our response from us. We pray your blessings upon us that we might know we've heard from you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Jim Chivers just recently retired. Um, one of the calculations that you have when you retire, at least that's what I'm told, is I'm getting closer to an age at which that happens. So you want to make sure you have enough money, right? That it doesn't run out before when? Before you do. Yeah, before the end. Exactly. That's the idea, isn't it? And so in many ways, our working life is trying to always, you know, set some aside. I mean, yes, maybe we'll get retirement. Maybe we'll get, uh, you know, a pension. Maybe we'll get um, Social Security. But, you know, maybe we're going to need more than that, aren't we? going to need more. So we put it away, put it away, put it away. And hopefully we'll have enough at the end to sustain us all the way to the end. It's the idea of retirement, putting things away, right? In many ways, we think of our Christian life that way. We're putting away things, hoping that well, just imagine if you would, you had a, a spiritual bank account, right? Many of us live, we profess to be Christians, many of us live as though the job of the Christian is to put enough in the bank so that by the time we get before God, we will have in our account enough for Him to say, good job, that's acceptable to me. Many of us face the, or we, we live the Christian life in that way. And we know we sin, and so we, we look at our sins as sort of their debits, right? They, so what do we need to do in order to fill the debit? We've got we to 
make more deposits. What are our deposits? Well, I mean, there are all kinds of things. Here, Paul talks about his deposits. His deposits were his advantages of being born to a particular family. And so it was sort of a heritage. But then he also added all these good works that he did. And so we kind of have the same mindset at times. And this is exactly and precisely what the Judaizers are teaching in their requiring more than faith in Christ. In order to please God, you've got to make some deposits here. One of those deposits might be circumcision. Some other deposits may be, you know, live according to Jewish law. These would be deposits that would... And in some sense, we all kind of have a mindset that we start, we start with a zero balance and we have to add to our account. Hopefully, prayerfully, we'll get enough in there so that when we face God, we can say, and He, he will say, that's enough. Thank you. You've done, you've done well. You're acceptable to me. But that mentality will rob you of any kind of joy that you're supposed to have in this life. And at the end of the day, it will always leave you insecure. It will always leave you wondering. Have I done enough? Am I acceptable? So Paul says in verse 1, look, Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And what he means by this, he will explain in verses 7 through 11. But establish the context here, he confronts those who are teaching that in order to be right with God, one must be circumcised and follow the law of God. Paul may have warned them before about Judaizers, which may be why he's saying, I'm writing the same things that I've spoken to you. This is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard to you. That may be what he means here. We don't know. He may be talking about the fact he keeps calling them to rejoice and to have joy in the Lord. But he's setting the context of warning them about these Judaizers. These Jews who professed to have come to Christ but insisted upon the Gentiles adopting the law of God and the practices, including circumcision, in order to be right with God. Paul refers to these Judaizers in verse 2 as dogs, as evildoers, as mutilators. He's not just trying to offend them, although that's certainly probably one of his intentions. But these are actually religious terms. Dogs has to do with, I mean, that's what the Jews called the Gentiles. Now, dogs in that day, you may know, were not pets. They weren't precious little pretty things that we take to the groomer and, and they smell good. No, these were, these were wild animals that ran in packs. They were gross. They were defiled. They ate rot. They were scavenged. It was awful. And so they called the Gentiles dogs, not to offend them. They called the Gentiles dogs because they saw the Gentiles as being 
offensive to God. They were defiled. Evildoers is exactly what they they call the Gentiles. The Gentiles do evil, right? They're workers of evil. Paul is using these terms to say that these very people who are seeing themselves up here and seeing themselves as being that which is telling the Gentiles what they ought to do to be different than they are, are actually like the Gentiles themselves in the ways that they would call the Gentiles dogs or evildoers or mutilators. This word mutilators is certainly a play on circumcision, but the idea here is that it's no more than the pagan practices of slashing yourself in order to get attention from your God. You ever remember a a biblical story in which that happened? Elijah and Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal and What were they doing to try to get Baal's attention? They were slashing themselves. He's saying they're mutilators of the flesh. The idea that we could actually do something to get God's attention. That's what he's criticizing here. So his purpose is not just to insult them, but to use these terms in order to turn them against these self-righteous Judaizers so that they might see themselves as they are or so that the Philippians might see themselves or see the Judaizers for what they are. So Paul is going to, that's setting the context, he's going to contrast this idea of doing the externals and putting confidence in the externals, putting confidence in the flesh, uses that term, He's going to contrast that with those who put confidence in Christ. And he calls these those that do so the true circumcision, right? Verse 3, we are the circumcision. That is, we are spiritually circumcised. We are circumcised in the heart. And those that are worship the triune God. They worship the triune God in and by the indwelling spirit. And they glory in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And they, unlike these others, put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the externals. No confidence in the deposits that they make over their lifetime. The spiritual bank account. No confidence there. No confidence in their resumes, no confidence in their um, in their bank account, no confidence in their spiritual assets or advantages. Beginning in verse four, Paul contrasts confidence in the flesh with confidence in Christ, and he uses banking terms here in order to explain. This contrast, words like loss and gain, which is also profit. And so we have here the ideas of assets and liabilities, all kinds of banking analogies. So in verses 4 through 6, he's going to talk about some of his assets, some of his deposits, some of the things that that he he was crediting to his account. But he's going he's gonna to tell us that he recognizes those things eventually as being counterfeit. So they're counterfeit assets. So 
We talk about counterfeit assets. Then we're going to talk in verses 7 through 8 about liabilities or debits, if you will. And then in verses 9 through 11, we're going to talk about true or real assets. So we're going to use this banking analogy to understand what Paul is saying here. Paul has assets. He's talking about his assets here, beginning in verse 4. He has all kinds of advantages. In fact, you might say he doesn't actually, he didn't actually view himself as starting at zero. Just by nature of who he was born to, he already had some credit. And we see four credits that he gives to himself or he gave to himself, advantages or assets of uh, heritage, if you will, of family uh, there in verse 5 where he was circumcised on the eighth day, right? According to the law, he is of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. These are all what he considered to be assets, so his his account's going up. And then added to that was his own efforts as he grows and sees himself uh, in this identity of being a Jew, He follows God's law with a a zeal that's that's not not comparable to anyone. He becomes a Pharisee. That's the pinnacle, right? The peak of a law follower. A Pharisee who we know studied under one of the best and greatest scholars, Jewish scholars uh, that existed. He, He went to the best school, if you will to learn the highest he could learn about the law and how to live it. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You know what he saw himself as? Do you remember the story of Phineas in the Old Testament? Where there were those that were defiling the temple and Phineas, or the, the tabernacle and the worship, and Phineas comes with the spear and rams it through them, kills them. That's what Paul saw himself as. He was zealous for God and zealous for the law. As to the law, he was blameless. You could not look at Paul and say, oh, he's a violator of the law here, here, and here. Now, Paul's not saying he's perfect. Nobody in the Old Testament really saw themselves as perfect, but they had had a system, didn't they? He followed that system religiously to deal with his sins and his shortcomings. He was blameless. He did what was right in the eyes of the law. Everyone that knew him would have, would have said he is as good as it gets when it comes to someone who follows God. These are his assets, and so he's adding to his account. Adding to his account. Some of us, we put confidence in our heritage. Put confidence in the fact that we had a a good and right upbringing. My parents raised me right. They spanked me. They made sure I obeyed. I'm a moral person. I have all kinds of advantages. When I look around, I realize I got some privileges. This is the way we look at ourselves at times. So some of us actually will put confidence in that. And we'll we'll kind of see those as as things that move up our our account. And then we'll add to that, right? We're a good person. We work hard. We've done what's right. 
We treat people fairly. We don't harm people. We look at, we look at ourselves as, oh, we're not really that bad, and we certainly aren't as bad as what we see around us, right? So, I mean, we're, we're okay. We're putting into our account. Good family, Christian family, good genes, hard work, moral upbringing, moral life. I provide for my family. I sacrifice for my children. I'm a good person. I treat people right. I do the right thing. I've built a good resume. My spiritual account ought to be, ought to be in decent shape, at least compared to other people. I've made deposits. I had some assets. Some of us, on the other hand, have no confidence in our heritage or in our efforts. <laughs> Some of us weren't raised so good. We've had those disadvantages. You know, not so good genes, right? And I'm not talking about health. I'm talking about all the other stuff our parents bless us with. And we kind of have a sense that we're really no good. We, we, we don't, we're not good enough to really overcome all of that. And we just keep failing and we keep struggling and we never seem to get ahead spiritually or any, any way. And we, we know, we know we're unacceptable. But we still believe that you have to, you have, to have that stuff in your account. So we're still, in that sense, although we have no confidence in the flesh, we're putting confidence in the flesh. So whether you have the advantages and you're kind of proud of those, or whether you realize you don't have any advantages and you're kind of, well, you might be jealous of that. I don't know. You know some of us are a little, a little jealous of the good things everybody else seems to have that make it easy for them. It's so hard for me. It's not fair. But, but you, you realize you don't have anything in your account. Either way, you're putting confidence in the flesh. I got more debts than credits, you feel like. Well, if I do have assets or do feel like I have something in my account, I may recognize that I'm superior to those around me. But you know, at the end of the day, and we're really no different than the person that has no nothing in their account. Because at the end of the day, all of us are still insecure. We just don't really know if we've done enough. I have had precious church-going ladies in their 80s, and they always went to church, and they were the best people in the world. And near their deathbed, they're still saying, I hope I did enough. Reality is, they didn't. And neither do you and I. I doubt any of us could ever boast in the assets that Paul had. But I want you to see how he viewed those assets after meeting Christ on the road to Damascus. To so look at verses 7 and 8. And here we're going to talk about liabilities. Whatever gain I had, whatever 
profit I have, whatever assets were mine, I counted, I credited, I did the math, and it was loss. Indeed, I, I counted, I did the math, and everything I count as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and even count them rubbish. So I want you to think about what he's saying here. What he views his assets as now that he has seen and met and knows Christ is that they are losses. He calls them losses. He uses that word three times in verses 7 through 8. A banking term, just as the word gain is a banking term, it means profit, loss is used in two ways. It's used to describe something that you once owned, but you've lost. For example, something that's lost at sea. You're never going to see it again. It's gone. Something I once owned, but now it's gone. I don't have it anymore. But the word loss is also used to describe liabilities. A liability is different than a loss. Because a liability means you owe something. A liability is more of a drain on you. It's a drain on your resources, right? It's a debt in many ways. Not only have I lost the thing, but the loss of the thing is now costing me what I can't pay. Let me give you an example of that. Let's say a farmer in colonial America, he harvests his crops, he puts them on a ship that's bound for England. The crops will be sold in England, and then the money will come back on another boat to the farmer. But the ship is lost at sea. The crop is gone. So not only has he lost his crop, his asset, but now he has no means to pay his debt because, of course, he borrowed money to buy the land and he borrowed money to buy the seeds. He borrowed money to pay the laborers. And now he has no assets to pay them, these liabilities. Paul views his assets, the things that he had once trusted in, all of his advantages, all of his standing in the community, respect from others, all the things that he gained because of this lifestyle that his advantages of being born in the way he was and his advantages of, of living the way he did, he views them not only as things that he has lost, but as liabilities. That is, as things which further weigh him down with debt, even more debt. In reality, if he stood before God, they're not assets at all. They're actually liabilities. His trust in his advantages and his efforts were not assets at all. They were counterfeit assets. They were, in fact, liabilities. Look at verse 7. Whatever he had considered his gain, whatever he thought was profit, credit, deposits, assets, he now calculates as loss. Liabilities, in fact. But not only that, but Paul looks at his trusting in his advantages and trusting in his resume or his credits, his assets, as something worse than liabilities. Look at verse 8. He describes his trust in these things 
as though he were trusting in rubbish, trash. Paul's choice of word here is crude. Many of you have heard it before. This word actually means that which is rotten, that which is stinking. It's a word that is used often for excrement. The King James calls it dung, which is exactly what it is. This word is crude. Paul uses it purposefully. In the vernacular today, it'd be like, that's a bunch of crap. It's a crude word. The stuff that Paul was depositing into his account, his zeal, his effort to keep the law, his reliance on his own righteousness, his own heritage, all of that was not only loss, not only a liability, but in reality, before God, it was a big old pile of stinking excrement. No wonder God says in Isaiah 64, 6, that our righteousness, the very best we can do, is like filthy rags, polluted garments before Him. See, this is how you and I should see all of our attempts to be righteous in and of and by ourselves before God. The very best among us, the most righteous, the most committed, the most moral people among us do not have any real assets. They only have liabilities which in fact are revolting and offensive to God. So here's good news for those of you that don't have any advantages. Feel like you've been given the short stick. No credit, no assets, no resume. We are all debtors. Every one of us. We are all undone. Our spiritual accounts are all not only empty at zero, but actually in the negatives. Deep liability, deep debt. All of our advantages, all of our good works will never even get us to zero. Let alone have in our account a billion dollars worth of perfect righteousness that you could never put in there. That's everyone's condition or situation. doesn't matter how low on the liability list you are or how high on the liability list you are. You are in liability. Some of you may not be as deep in debt as others, but you're in debt. And you will never even get to zero. So any notion of advantage or of effort as gaining us anything in the sight of God is destroyed by what Paul says here. It's destroyed by his testimony. If you imagine you can or if you imagine that you are working in any way to earn God's favor, you must adopt Paul's view here. Confidence in the flesh, in you being and doing your own righteousness, is in reality loss, liability, and revolting before God. 
big old pile of offensive garbage. And so Paul sees this reality when he sees Jesus. When he trusts in Christ, then he knew that his assets were counterfeit. And they were revolting liabilities. He knew this because he saw the true and the real assets that are only found in Christ. We see this in verse 11. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Jesus is so rich in righteousness that He can give each of us what we need. He can put into your account the billion dollars of perfect righteousness that you need in order to stand before God. And you realize what He had to do before that. He had to get you out of debt. So He gets you out of debt, gets you up to zero, then He gives you all the righteousness you need so that your account is where it needs to be as you stand before God. And God says, perfect righteousness, that's acceptable. That's how rich Jesus is. For every one of you that trust in Him, that's what He's done for you. So rich in righteousness. And His life is so valuable that His death zeroed out all of your accounts. And I'm talking real debt. I'm talking specific sins. Not sin in general. Not righteousness in general. I'm talking about your stuff. He took on Himself. Brings you up to zero. The zero doesn't get you there. So He gives to you all of His perfect righteousness. Paul sees this. You and I see this. And it's like, oh. And wouldn't you love somebody to come along and pay all your debts? If someone came along, paid all your debts, you'd probably want to get to know that person. But if that person put a billion dollars in your account, I think you'd want to get to know them even more. Who would do such a thing? For me. Especially given the way I thought about and treated all these little things I'm trying to do to get God's favor is offensive pile of you know what. Paul, using the language of value, points to the greatest treasure, the most spectacular worth, and that is of Christ. Christ is the pearl of great price. And once it's found, you would sell everything you have and give it all up in order to have that pearl. You'd give up everything you once relied upon. Knowing Christ and gaining Him, being captured, captivated by Him, this captivated Paul, it gripped his heart because he came to see and to realize not only the value of Christ in and of Himself, but he came to experience the gracious love of Jesus who gave himself up for Paul, who made Paul his own. You see that in verse 12? It's, it's not that I've obtained this already or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it all. Why? Because Christ Jesus made me his own. 
Who would do such a thing? Who would love me this way? And not only that, he unites himself to Paul. He takes upon himself all of Paul's revolting liabilities. He gives to Paul all of his real and true and wonderful assets. Paul declares in verse 9 that to be found in Christ, to be united to Him, to trust and rely upon Christ, to have confidence not in the flesh, not in myself, but in Christ by faith is to have a righteousness that comes from God. It's not the filthy and offensive righteousness that I'm working for on my own, but it's the righteousness of the perfect Son of God, Christ Jesus Himself. And it gives the believer utmost assurance, utmost confidence before God. For it is a confidence in Christ, not in myself. This realization of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, it fuels Paul's zeal and passion to know Jesus more. Look at verse 10. Here he's talking about how he grows in this grace and in this love. It is to know Him. Christ, the greatest treasure. It is to know that great treasure. It is to know the power of His resurrection. That is that we would know and experience being alive to God. Being alive to God's will. Being led by His indwelling Spirit. It is His desire, fuels His zeal and desire, passion to Share, that is to fellowship, the word koinonia there, to share in the sufferings of Christ. It's not only to know Jesus in suffering like Him, but it's to become like Him in His death, we see at the end of verse 10. To become like Him in His death means that we, we have already died to sin, we've died to its power, to its dominion over us, but being conformed to His death means that we're daily dying to the the influence of His sin in us. So with our eyes to and our hope in the glorious future of the physical resurrection, we see in verse 11, that's where our conformity to Christ will be complete. We will see our Savior, the one that we are getting to know now. We will see Him face to face. So it's, this is the gospel the gospel to you and I. So don't put confidence in the flesh. <laughs> don't trust in your advantages of family, your upbringing, the things that you do that you consider to be good or right. Do what Paul did, who, by the way, was far more qualified in human terms than you and I could ever be. Count all of your assets, whatever you imagine. You could or should offer to God to be acceptable to Him. Count them as counterfeit. Count them as loss. Count them as damaging liabilities. Count them as a revolting pile of stinking garbage. This you will do when you look to Christ and you see His surpassing worth. For He's the treasure that you seek. He is the, the one of utmost value. Because in Him you find all the assets you desire and all the credits that make one acceptable to God. He brings you up to zero. He fills your account. Counts it to you. Reckons it to you. It's all accounting terms. 
gives you the credit, makes the deposit of perfect righteousness, and you stand before God like that. Not your little paltry self. And I don't care who you are in this room right now and how much you think of yourself. You are offensive to the living God. And you will not get in there on your own. All of your good stuff is stinking. You must have Christ. And He gives Himself freely. And He gives more than Himself. He doesn't just make the account right, but He gives you Himself. Which is a far greater treasure than all that He's put in your account. You receive and embrace this by faith. It's in your account. You trust the account. His account on your behalf. You rely on that. You put confidence in that. That's your hope. Trust in and have confidence in Christ. You know and believe that His death was for you. You know and believe that He imparts to you the righteousness that you need. You know and believe that He makes Himself known to you by His Word and by His indwelling Spirit. And He has fellowship with you. So put no confidence in yourself. Put all of your confidence in Jesus. See, this then is how the believer can rejoice regardless of all the stuff that's going on in my life. Because I'm rejoicing in Him. I'm rejoicing in this. I'm rejoicing in a right relationship with God and fellowship with the living God through Christ and with Christ. This is how we can rejoice. Because we know and we are known by the Lord Jesus. And we are gaining and growing in knowledge of Christ more and more every day. Those are the people that can rejoice. Those are the people that can respond to the command, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Let's pray. Our Father, we come asking for your grace to us to understand the gospel. Not in an academic or intellectual way, but Lord, may it transform our hearts. And we know you through the gospel. And that we know what the gospel is and how valuable it is. And the one who stands behind the gospel, the one who is the gospel, the Lord Jesus himself, we pray that you will show us who you are, Lord Jesus, more and more, that we would grow in knowing you. And I pray for those that may be in our congregation this morning who are outside of saving faith, I would ask you to convict them by the power of your spirit that they may know this truth, that they stand before you naked, filthy, with nothing to stand on. Oh, Lord, calls them to fear and tremble before you, that they might flee to and cling to the Lord Jesus who gives life. Because He gives everything we need, the forgiveness of sins and all the righteousness that's required to stand before you. Make your gospel clear to us. Lord, we pray 
that we not only believe it and trust in it and come into saving faith, but we live according to that gospel as we depend upon you for all aspects of our life. Bless us, we pray, and exalt your Son in our midst. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.